Today we continue talking about hope. Hope, we've said, is less of a thing that happens to us than it is a training regimen that we undertake so that we can bring something to the world that the world needs. We've been talking about how our tradition calls us and even schedules us for this training so that we can do better than waiting for circumstances to get better and then hoping. No, our spiritual practices are designed to equip us to be agents of hope to the darkness in the darkness. In other words, our spiritual journey equips us, resources us, so that we can see hope even when it's dark, even when life's challenges seem to overrun us. So if you've missed any of the Sundays in this lesson, I would encourage you to go back and catch up because we're not going to do much of a recap today. The last few weeks, this lesson has been talking about the tools that our tradition gives us, tools that enable us to hold on to hope in the darkness, enable us to be the kind of people we need to be to bring light to the darkness, to bring hope to despair, to repair what's broken and to heal what's wounded. Our ability to hold on to hope and be agents of hope while it's dark, this is an essential component to bringing our best selves to the assignment that we've been given by Jesus, which is to repair and heal the world around us. So, so far we've looked at a couple of tools of that hope. The first that we saw was practicing being the observer self. We called it our meditative practice, our centering prayer practice. The second we talked about was being gatekeepers of the stories that we tell ourselves, because in many ways our stories can perpetuate a hope-killing dynamic. These stories that we tell ourselves, usually operating under the radar of our awareness, these stories are the primary determinants of whether we bring hope to the world that we shape each day or whether we succumb to the darkness along with everybody else. Hope-killing stories, we said, are powerful, but hope-killing stories are also very challengeable. So, for today, if you grew up in church, there's a good chance that you're familiar with one of our ancient texts, the first few verses of uh, Romans 12. One of my spiritual practices since I was a teenager was to take these texts that somehow seemed distant and far away and to paraphrase them into terminology, into words that were uh, meaningful to me. And I did that here with these texts. So this is my paraphrase of Romans 12, 1 and 2. My friends, we follow Jesus. There's a call on us to live bigger lives, lives of service to something bigger than ourselves. It is to us to repair our world, to carry God light to people's darkness, and God life to folks dying a little bit each day. That's what he called us to do. But to do that, we have to be people able to do that. We have to draw from a deeper source, see a bigger truth. We can't just do what everybody does, think what everybody thinks, do that, and our instincts will be the same as everybody else's. That won't help anybody. So come on. Let's do the work of inner transformation. Let's do the work of renewing our minds. Let's bring our best selves to the job before us. That's what these practical tools do. 
come on, together now. Let's do the work of inner transformation. Come on, together now. Let's do the work of renewing our minds. Let's bring our best selves to the job of healing the world. Now last week, the tool that we looked at uh, was being gatekeepers of the stories we tell ourselves. I want to continue along that line today. But before I do, I want to say some little bit of follow-up to last week. If you're a newcomer, you will not have heard of one of the things that we do together as a community. We call it doing a worksheet. And what that means is, on our website, there's a page under the resources tab uh, about self-awareness, self-disclosure, rethinking the ancient practice of confession. Uh, so you will find when you go there a worksheet that has 20 questions on it. These are questions designed to help us explore self-awareness in our own experience. There's also some three to four minute audio clips that will kind of explain how to work through all the questions, the questions that help us become self-aware. When we're in circumstances that evoke an afflictive emotion, we work really hard not to react immediately. Because when we react immediately, almost inevitably, we resort back to old habitual thought patterns. When we react immediately, almost inevitably, we go back to these old habits that have been deeply rutted into our brains. Old ways of thinking, old stories that we tell, old emotional reactions that we tend to have. We do that because it's the way our brains work. We've said it many times that our brains are designed to make it easier to do a thing the second time. It's easier to have the same reaction the second time. It's easier to tell the same story the second time. It's easier to have the same emotional response the second time. And it's easier still the third time and the fourth time and the 400th time until these reactions become simply the way we are. It's how our brains are wired. Thoughts that we think are fresh and new and real are in fact instinctive, habituated. So in a sense, we're going through our lives like automatons. The thoughts that we think are the one and true truth about some troubling circumstance or another that we're having are really just a stimuli that's creating a response, a response that is very well rehearsed, a very well-worn path that we have walked before. We are, in fact, quite robotic in that sense. We are habitual. Our thought patterns go the way that our thought patterns have gone. We think this way because we just actually have these ruts in our heads. It's when an axon and a dendrite fire, the next time that they fire, they do better at the same thing. It's just wired into our brains. Consequently, the stories that we tell ourselves, these stories that determine whether hope lives or hope dies, the stories that determine the version of self that we will bring to our spiritual mandate to be healers of our homes and our jobs and our classrooms or not be healers of our homes and our jobs and our classrooms, if we don't see these habituated stories, they do all that determining not because we have some kind of self-aware decision that we're making, but simply because habit thus dictates These just are the stories that we tell. These just are the thoughts that we think. These just are the emotional framework, the emotional 
responses that we bring to bear on our lives. And we do it automatically, habitually, in a pre-programmed way. The same pattern of thoughts and feelings and stories that we practiced the last time. So, as a community, we practice the ancient spiritual discipline of confession. Not about getting forgiveness, because we've said so many times, forgiveness is to God the way shine is to sun. Forgiveness is just not in the mix. But we practice confession for the purpose of self-awareness that's reinforced when we practice it with another in self-disclosure. And for shorthand, we call all of that doing a worksheet. Again, you can get up to speed by just going to our website and clicking under the Resources tab. I'd like to remind all of our community to keep encouraging one another to do two worksheets a month. Now, assuming that that's never going to happen in December, and assuming that there's probably going to be at least one month during the summer that we're not going to get to it, that's between 18 and 20 times in the course of a year that we do that. 18 to 20 times a year when we stand back from our brain habits and we study them. We stand back from our brain habits instead of being immersed in them, identified with them, we look at them and we examine them. Now, 18 to 20 times, that's a lot. It's actually a big number over the course of a year. But it's not just that it's a big number. It's even worse than that. The thing is, the ancient practices are called disciplines. And they're called disciplines for a reason. And the reason is, they're hard to do. (laughs) It's difficult to stand outside of our brain habits. It's difficult to study ourselves from the observer position. It's difficult not to be caught up in our stories, but to become students of our stories. It's difficult. It can take up to an hour to work your way through that worksheet with those 20 questions. Then you make an appointment with a spiritual friend. And by the way, if you don't uh, have someone that knows how to do this, Cindy, wave your hand back there. Cindy will connect you to one of the folks on the community care team who've been practicing and practicing this, and they would be happy to do that together with you. And then once you make this appointment, there's another hour that you're going to spend doing this. So yeah, it's difficult. It's a discipline. Disciplines are difficult, which is why each month we'll have one of the folks who's been doing this for a while, I started the training last year, stand up here during the announcements and tell you a story of why it's a price worth paying, why the cost of admission is worth it. Because they will stand up and tell stories about doing this difficult thing and how it transforms us and how, as our text said earlier, it will renew our minds. This is the work of inner transformation. This is the work of mind renewal. So as strongly as I can encourage you, I do encourage you to make a discipline of it. Twice a month, unearth the drivers that drive your life unearth the forces that shape your life, unearth the stories that control everything from your relationships to the way that you walk through your days. Along the way, what we do is we do learn to dispute our stories. We learn to argue with them. We learn to make them truer. We learn to poke holes at where they seem universally true, but they're actually only partially true. We learn to make our stories less habitual less unseen. 
Well, today and next week, I want to look at some of the common stories that we tell together. Because if we all have an inclination to tell this kind of story, to know what that story is, is to be forewarned. And to be forewarned is to be forearmed. So if we know the shape of these stories that a society, like our society, commonly tells, then we can do a better job disputing those stories when they arise. So let's think about one of the common stories that happens to us because we live in an industrial or post-industrial society. So in an industrial and post-industrial society, one of the stories that we tend to have that is a hope-killing story is a story that's influenced by scope and scale. Uh, A story that is influenced by scope and scale. Let me tell you what I mean. We human beings have lived for generations and generations and generations in groups of between 100 and 200. Our identity was not tied to, our working relationships did not happen in the context of nation or state or even county or city. Our identity was tied to Our functioning relations happened within the identity tied to village or clan or before that, wandering band. So for most of our evolutionary history, our brains and our bodies kind of adapted to a world in which we did our cooperating and our problem solving and our need meeting in a scope and scale that had to do with 100 or 200 people people who we could access on a daily basis, people who made all the important decisions that affected us, we could influence and be influenced by because they were accessible. So when systems were being created, we were in the mix of that system creating. When needs were being assessed and met, we were in the system that was assessing and meeting those needs. But after the Industrial Revolution began to drive urbanization, more and more people moved from villages or rural contexts into uh, cities. Communication that had happened in the form of conversations or village meetings now moved to become mass, mass communications. Basic human systems that we need to stay alive work systems and food systems and housing systems and education systems and communication and governance, even shopping systems, begin to operate at a scope and scale that was not how our bodies and brains have adapted to be. So consequently, all of these systems that you and I live in every day eclipse any one of our brains or our body's capacity to cope or adapt. That's just what happened because we live in a Western developed nation. And one of the side effects of that are the stories that we tell ourselves. Uh, Collectively, we begin to feel what Humphrey Bogart articulated for us at the end of the movie Casablanca when he said, it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people doesn't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Living in a world of systems that are bigger than any one of us begins to evoke a very commonly told story. Uh, 
It is the what I do or don't do doesn't really matter story. What I do or don't do doesn't really matter. When we live in systems that are much bigger than any one of us, that's one of the common stories that we tell. What I do or don't do doesn't really matter that much. In a system that's made up of millions of people, what I do or don't do does not have the same impact that it had when I lived in a village of 400 relating to 200. A common story that we tell ourselves is that what we do or don't do isn't going to change anything. It's not going to make a big difference. So, you might have heard the word or the term bandied about. Uh, it's kind of uh, something people study these days. It's called learned helplessness. It describes uh, what happens to individuals in certain circumstances. And it, it applies to individuals who go through these uh, experiences. But if we stand back far enough, we, be, we can begin to see how that informs what happens in our society. When an individual has a series of experiences in which what they do or don't do won't matter for an outcome, it changes them. Again, this happens to individuals, but we're going to look at it because the economic and social forces that drive our society have evoked a reality in which this also happens to us collectively. When it happens to an individual, it has a very predictable influence upon the stories that we tell ourselves and how those stories affect us as individuals. Now, what's telling is that when we examine those effects that happen to individuals in a series of learned helplessness experiences. It begins to mirror the effects that we as a society are seeing across the board happening to many, many, many of us collectively. We seem to have picked up some of the same symptoms that happen to people in a learned helplessness context collectively together. Now, if you're interested in this, there's a lot more about learned helplessness in this book. It's a good book. You ought to read it. It's called Learned Optimism. But in a book, it'll tell you about a series of experiments, sometimes with rats or dogs, sometimes with people. The subjects are broken into two groups with a control group, and some variable is introduced to the system. Uh, the variable might be a pleasant one, or it might be an unpleasant one. If it's a disagreeable variable, it would be something like a noise or a shock or something like that. If it's an agreeable one, it might be some food or it might be uh, some money, something like that. Well, the first group is able, in this experiment, to control the variable. Maybe if they press a button multiple times on the third push, uh, a food will drop or a shock will stop. The second group gets the exact same things that the uh, first group got. They get the food drop or they get the shock to stop, but it's not because of anything they did. It just kind of happened randomly. Uh, they did not make it happen. Nothing that they do or don't do matters for the outcome. Well, you can kind of imagine what the results of that kind of experiment would be. They're pretty consistent across the species. doesn't matter if it's a rat or a dog or a person. The group who can't affect change ends up giving up, ends up becoming passive. Consequently, the rats don't uh, even try to escape the shock anymore. They just sit there and allow themselves to be shocked. The people don't even try to solve the puzzle anymore. They just sit there passively. The, group, uh, the two groups end up having different emotional frameworks as well. 
the, the group with enough control over the variable is, remains active, actually becomes chipper. The group without uh, the ability to control the variable becomes passive, becomes depressed. Once experience uh, teaches people that the future is dim and that nothing will change, that anything they do or don't do will be futile, it shapes the story that they tell themselves and the story shapes the lives that they live which ends up having psychological effect, but if you want to read the book, you'll see there's a whole daunting list of physiological effects as well. Well, that makes sense. What uh, is I want to point out for our understanding today is that the systems that you and I live in unintentionally are trying their dead-level best to send us that same message. What you do or don't do doesn't matter. The future is not in your control. You cannot affect what happens with immigration or health care or you just name the context. You can't do anything about it. Anything you do or don't do will be futile. You can't change the way the school board operates. You can't change the way food production and distribution is done. You can't change the way that any one of these major systems operates because it functions at a scope and scale that no human being can be able to uh, bring change to it. And so we begin to tell ourselves a story. And that story has to do with nothing that you do or don't do will matter. And so without seeing it happen to us, many who live in Western developed nations begin telling ourselves that story. A story we don't even see ourselves telling. A story to which we bring no skepticism. A story to which we bring no argument. And have I mentioned that stories impact us? The stories that we tell influence the instincts that we bring to bear. The instincts that we bring to bear affects the actions or reactions that we live in. Now in this instance, because we live in systems that are bigger than we can manage, the impact for us collectively is one of learned helplessness. Because we end up mirroring the same kinds of impacts that those individuals had when they were in a laboratory having those experiences. Now the symptoms in the experiments were symptoms like a notable loss of passion for everyday life. Increased insomnia, psychomotor retardation, which really means you're thinking slower and you're moving slower, loss of energy, feelings of worthlessness, feelings of shame, feelings of guilt, poor concentration, sometimes suicidal thoughts or actions. And if you look at our society as a whole, those same symptoms are showing up with ever-increasing, at ever-increasing rates. The symptoms of learned helplessness are almost an exact correlate to the symptoms of rising anxiety and depression in our society. Goodness sakes, how many of us grapple with anxiety or depression? Learned helplessness that is produced in a laboratory 
mirrors the effects of anxiety and depression that are rising so rapidly in Western society. The rates of anxiety and depression have increased significantly over the last three generations. In the book, you'll read about several studies that show that there has been a tenfold increase in the amount of anxiety and depression since just before World War II. Ten times more anxiety and depression than just before World War II. One of the causes of that, there are a couple of causes for that kind of anxiety and depression, but one of the significant causes is the story that we tell ourselves. Stories influenced by subtextual messages that are embedded in the systems that we live in. What we do or don't do doesn't matter. Now it's unlikely that our human brain chemistry has changed since the World War II. It is unlikely that our genetic makeup has changed since World War II. A tenfold increase in anxiety and depression is probably not due to biological factors. The stories that we tell ourselves are powerful. One of those stories is what you do or don't do doesn't matter. This particular story is kind of sneaky. We got it into our heads when we weren't looking. It snuck in when we opened the door to let in big systems. We let in big systems in order to handle the Industrial Revolution. We moved into cities. We opened up industrialization systems. We opened up the door to urbanization systems. We opened up the door to business systems. We opened up the door to food systems and government systems and media systems. And when we opened the door for them, the what-you-do-won't-matter story kind of snuck in while we weren't looking. Unseen, it becomes a story that we tell ourselves. Unseen, it becomes a habitual story, a story that we tell again and again and again. Unchallenged, it goes about its work doing what stories do, impacting our lives and doing it for many, many, many of us collectively as well as individually. That's what stories do. But as we've seen, unseen doesn't mean that it doesn't affect us. So when we do a worksheet... When we do these 20 questions, when we meet together and talk about these things, we come to the last three questions. This, quest, this, this story that you've unearthed by doing the first several questions, this story that you tell yourself, this story that comes up when circumstances create an afflictive emotion, this story that we've just spent these questions studying, the last three questions are, is it true? Is it helpful? Is it necessary? Those are the last three questions on the worksheet. Is this story true? Is it helpful? Is it necessary? And almost always, first-timers hear those questions and they respond, no, no, it's not true. And uh, that's because it has to be the right answer, and everybody wants to get the right answer. So we say, we just spit 15 uh, questions answering the question, well, of course it's true. This is why it really bothers me. And then we get to the question, is it true? No, it's not true. (laughs) And so those who've done it a few times have to go back and say, all right, now, uh, are you sure? Because we did just work through those questions, and you really made a compelling case that this story is really bad, and it really is true. The whole thing is part of this story, and there are data points that certainly reinforce that story. Did it all of a sudden stop being true? And that happens, and which is helpful for understanding what we're doing. We're not uh, trying to examine our stories for a binary sense of truth. Is it true or is it not true? Flip the switch. It's either completely true or it's completely untrue. We're not doing that. What we're trying to do 
is look for cracks in this edifice of our story's monolithic truthiness. In other words, we ask questions like, okay, this story that I just told, it's true. But is it always true? Is it true in every circumstance? Is it true for other people the way it seems to be true for me? Are there ways that if I acted that way, I could make this story less true? Are there options available that if I did that would undercut the truthiness of this truth? So when we are doing a worksheet, we're starting to realize what we're doing is assaulting the fortress of the stories that we tell ourselves so that they are not always dominating everything. Is it true is a question about asking, do these things that seem to pervade my consciousness, do they reflect accurately the way the world always is? Well, that's true when we're doing our own individual worksheets together, when we're practicing self-awareness and self-disclosure, when we're practicing confession. But that's also true when we collectively begin to look at the collective stories that we tell ourselves. What I do or don't do doesn't matter. We look at how do we whittle away at the power of that dominating narrative. Because it is true that we do not, you and I, have the same kind of power or control in living in these systems of millions that we had when we lived in villages. There is truth to that story. But once we absorb a story sight unseen, once it sneaks in when we open ourselves to something different, it gets into us and begins to permeate places where it has no business being. Because it is not a universal story. It is not the whole truth kind of a story. It's challengeable. We're not always powerless, not in every instance. We're not always powerless in every case or in every scenario. But once a story takes root and it is not examined and it is not challenged, it worms its way into places where it is not true but still functions. It bleeds into areas where it is not true, but it still dominates. What you do or don't do doesn't matter is like that. I often quote Mother Teresa on this point because when I read this quote, it had a strong impact on me. It helped me deal with my own, nothing I do will matter. When we lived in villages, we would never run into 1,000 hungry people we might run into one or two hungry people. So we never developed the scope and scale to think in terms of a thousand hungry people or a million hungry people. So she said, a thousand people before you are hungry. You cannot feed a thousand hungry people. So don't. Do not feed a thousand hungry people. But feed one. Don't fail feed one. It is true that we don't have the same kind of change capacity that we had when we lived in smaller groups. But we do not live in a closed system. There are things that we can change. The story that that nothing you do matters is not true in every context. Even though, unchallenged, that story will bleed into and immobilize a lot of places in our lives so we become much more powerless 
than the reality calls for. Life still happens on a human scale. We still live in contexts where we get to shape some part of the world a little bit each day. Because we see mass media that points us to the larger scope on a daily basis, we don't always see the power that we have right here and right now. We still live in neighborhoods, we still go to jobs, we still get educated in classrooms. During last year, I had a strong emphasis on the service quadrant in all of the lessons. So consequently, you heard me say this on multiple occasions, that significant social change, changing the big structures of a society, still happens at a human scale. It happens person to person, one person at a time. How many times did I remind us to hear Jesus telling us to look to the yeast Look to these instances in which we can affect change. Substantive change in a society happens not because of a mass movement, but because a million women tell their story of how they were sexually harmed by a man. Substantive change happens to a society because millions of Americans awaken to the inequity between people of color and white people in a society. What you do doesn't matter is an exceedingly challengeable story. We can, each of us, make change in our own lives. We can, each of us, make change in our own homes. We can, each of us, make change on our jobs, in our classrooms. There, are, there is a human scale and a human scope in which every one of us can be the agents of light and life that God has called us to be. We can make a difference. The problem is, this collective story that snuck into our awareness when we weren't looking, that story will shut us down. That story will come on and it will immobilize us. Unexamined, unchallenged, that story will stop us in our tracks. Jesus actually taught us how to go about challenging the what you do doesn't matter story. And he said it this way. There's a little thing in front of you. Do that. Do it now. Don't wait. Do that little thing and make that little change. Do it in your life. Do it in your family. Do it in your neighborhood. Do it on your job. Do it in your classroom. Do it with the nonprofit that you participate in. Do it with Family Promise. Do it in your church. Do it where you are. Do that thing, that little thing, but do it with vigor. And, he taught us, when you do, if you are faithful with that little thing that is right in front of you, the thing that you can do, the thing that you know how to do, the thing that stretches you, but not so much that you can't do it, if you're faithful with that thing, tomorrow you will actually see there's more to do and you will look inside and find that you've got the capacity to do more than you could do yesterday. That's the way this thing works. Be faithful with a little, Jesus taught us, and you'll give it to be in charge of a little bit more tomorrow. The story that causes us collectively so much anxiety, the story that causes us collectively so much depression, The story that causes us collectively so much immobilization. What you do or what you don't do doesn't matter. That's a story we can challenge. 
That's a story that when we break out of this big scale and realize that humanity happens in scope and scale in which we live. That's a story where we can see that what we do does matter. The differences that we make are possible. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that we would be awakened to see our stories and awakened to see in particular how this collective story infects us as well. And may we, as we take up these spiritual practices, these hope-affirming practices, these hope-training practices, may we be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Be it so, Lord. Amen.